Previously, on Saving Apollo 13, here is a level of failure he's never experienced before. It's almost so bad it can't be real. It looks to me that we are venting something. We are venting something into space. Lovell looks at his crewmates and says, if we're going to get home, we're going to have to use Aquarius. They're losing this ship a lot faster than they thought. We've got a little over 40 minutes left in tank one. Then he calls again and it's down to seven minutes. Okay, Aquarius is up and Odyssey is completely powered down. The problems they face are massive. But Krantz has a plan. This is Saving Apollo 13, the incredible story of NASA's Apollo 13 mission, the spacecraft that failed en route to the moon, and the feats of human ingenuity that saved the lives of the three men aboard. In a room full of experts, who takes charge in a crisis? When your spacecraft is headed for the moon, how do you turn it around when its main engine is dead? I'm Sean Brady, Forensic Engineer, and this is Episode 3, Tiger Team. Calmness. That's what Gene Kranz knows it's going to take. Flight control teams work in six-hour shifts, and there are four teams. Kranz is going to pull his white team off calm for the rest of the mission, and bump the other three teams up to eight-hour shifts. His white team will be central players in the rescue plan that's forming in his mind. And while these men may be part of Krantz's white team, over the days that follow, they will have an altogether more glamorous title bestowed upon them. The Tiger Team. And now, standing in room 210, looking over his white team, Krantz is going to make sure that calmness prevails. And to Krantz, there are three pieces of kit they can use to solve these problems. The command module, the service module, and the lunar module. Now, the conically shaped command module will be their re-entry vehicle, as it was intended. But the big issue is it's turned off, and it's now going to spend days and days in the deep freeze of space without its heaters. And then they're going to have to figure out how to turn it back on again using only its own battery power. And this has never been done before or even tested before. And there are people in this very room who doubt it can ever be turned on again. Then there's the service module, the cylindrical craft that's still attached to the back of the command module. And Kranz knows this is dead. So he factors this out of his thinking. Which leaves the lunar module. And this is their lifeboat. But right now, it looks like a pretty inadequate lifeboat. It was designed to keep two men alive for two days. Now the white team are going to have to figure out how to stretch two days to three or four days. And they have to keep three men, not two, alive for that time. But that's all they have to work with. The lunar module is going to have to provide all the power, life support and propulsion needed to get back to the point of re-entry. So Kranz calls three controllers to the front of the room. Aldrich, Bill Peters and Aaron, come on up front where everyone can see you. The rest of you knock it off and find a place to sit. 
Then Kranz speaks about some of the problems they face, and he adds, the odds are damned long, but we are damned good. My three leads will be Aldrich, Peters and Aaron. Make sure everyone, and I mean everyone, knows the mandate I'm giving them. Aldrich will be the master of the integrated checklist for the re-entry phase. John Aaron will develop the checklist strategy and has the spacecraft resources. Whatever he says goes. He has absolute veto authority over any use of our consumables. Bill Peters will focus on the lunar module lifeboat. Whatever any of these three ask of you, you will do. When you leave this room, you must leave believing that this crew is coming home. I don't give a damn about the odds and I don't give a damn that we've never done anything like this before. Flight control will never lose an American in space. You've got to believe, your people have got to believe that this crew is coming home. Now let's get going. Okay, Aquarius, and uh, down here we're uh, getting regrouped, uh, trying to work on your control modes and uh, trying to set up something for PTC and uh, taking a look at consumables as opposed to flight plans and so forth. And as soon as we get all that information, uh, we'll pass it up to you. So if you ever uh, are able to see any stars out there and think you could do an alignment out the window, why, let us know. Chris Kraft, the deputy director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, is on his way to a press conference. It's only been hours since the crisis began, and he's going to hit off the media storm that's intent on swallowing NASA. Ever since the fire on Apollo 1, NASA had taken a tell-all, honest approach with the media. And the truth tonight was going to be a pretty rough story. And this is familiar territory for Kraft. He'd been around NASA since the beginning. The very concept of mission control had been his. He'd been a flight director and he'd been the one who'd brought Gene Kranz up through the ranks. But this isn't Kraft's job tonight. The press conference starts and the questions begin and Kraft and the others answer them as clinically as possible. But finally a question is asked that has no easy deflection. One of the journalists asks, compared to other emergencies Chris, for example Scott Carpenter's overshoot, how would you classify this situation? So Kraft composes himself and says, I would say that this is as serious a situation as we've ever had in a manned spaceflight. When the press conference finishes, Kraft sprints back to Mission Control and when he gets there, he finds it a considerably calmer place than when he'd left. Glenn Lunny is still on shift along with the rest of his black team. And behind Lunny, Gene Kranz is pacing around. He's back from his meeting with the Tiger team in room 210. And Chris Kraft knows that Gene Kranz is worried about the same thing he is. What is the next stage in getting Apollo 13 home? And in Chris Kraft's mind, there are two potential options available for getting the men on a track home. The first is called the direct abort. They simply turn the spacecraft around and send it directly back to the Earth. But the word simply is totally deceptive. 
To do a direct abort, they'll have to fire the engine on the service module for more than five minutes at full throttle. Now this will bring the spacecraft to a full stop and then get it moving in the opposite direction. Get that right and the men will be on their way home as fast as possible. The second option is the circumlunar abort. For this option, Apollo 13 will keep on going on its current trajectory towards the moon. Then they'll get caught by the moon's gravity, which will pull them around the back of the moon and slingshot them back towards the Earth. Now this is known as the free return trajectory and it's one of NASA's ultimate insurance policies. So if at any point a craft loses thrusters or power, they can still get home. But Apollo 13 is one of the missions that is not flying on a free return trajectory. And the reason for this is they have to get to their landing site on the moon, the Fra Moro Highlands. And now, because they're not on a free return trajectory, they will, if they keep going on their current path, slingshot around the moon and be thrown back towards the Earth. But they'll miss the Earth by 40,000 miles. So Chris Craft knows that if the preferred path is going around the moon, then they're going to have to fire the engines and do some sort of burn to change the trajectory of the craft to bring it back on a free return trajectory. And Kraft knows exactly what he'd do if this was his decision. He would not do the direct abort. There's no way he'd be turning around the craft and firing the service module engine. The service module seems like it's totally crippled. Now once you rule out that engine, you're only left with the lunar module and its engine. So they could allow the ship to continue on its current path and let it pass by the back of the moon. And once it had gone round the moon, they could fire the engine to put the ship back on a free return trajectory. This is known as the PC plus two burn and it would also speed up the craft and shorten the trip home. But to Chris Craft, it seems crazy to wait that long for a burn. He wants to fire that engine as soon as possible and get them back on a free return trajectory now. Then they can do another burn after they've gone round the moon, the PC plus two burn, to build up speed. Now, Kraft is wondering how to approach Gene Kranz on this two-burn idea, because this is Gene's show. One of the critical rules in mission control, and it was Kraft himself who'd written it, is that the flight director is in full control. And as Chris Kraft is wondering how best to tell Gene Kranz what he'd like him to do, he doesn't have to say anything. Kranz says, Chris, I sure as hell don't trust that service module engine. I don't either, Gene. And Kranz says, I'm not sure we could fire it even if we wanted to. Kraft nods and says, I'm not either. So Kranz says, no matter what else we do, I think we're going to have to go around the moon. Concur, says Kraft. When do you want to burn? Kranz says, I don't want to wait till tomorrow evening. How about we try a quick burn for a free return now, get that squared away, and then figure out if we want to speed them up with a PC plus two tomorrow. Kraft nods and says, Gene, I think that's a good idea. 200,000 odd miles away, Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes are getting used to the crowd that is three men in the lunar module, the LEM Aquarius. And this LEM is tiny. It has no seats because it's designed to be flown standing up. There are two small triangular windows and there's an instrument panel in front of them. 
covered in switches and dials. It's so small that if one of the men move, he automatically bumps the other two. And in the limb, the temperature is starting to fall too, and the men's perspiration is starting to collect on the walls and windows, and the windows are starting to fog up. Lovell tries to look out one and says, it's not going to be easy flying this thing if we can't even see through the glass. Lovell wipes the condensation off and looks out. It's not a pretty sight. There's a swirling cloud of oxygenized crystals and particles of debris. The leftovers from the explosion that tore open the service module. And all this debris and gas is not dispersing because there's nothing to disperse it. It's travelling along, keeping pace with the spacecraft. And if they can't see the stars, then they can't check their position in space because they can't do star triangulation. To level this means there's no way to cross-check their guidance system. And if they can't cross-check their guidance system, then they can't be totally sure where they are in space. Which means they can't be confident that any burns they do to change trajectory will be correct. So both the command module and the LEM have an internal guidance platform, a gimbaled system that keeps a record of which way the spacecraft is pointing. But these systems have a tendency to drift over time, and they need to be checked and reset during flights. And the way they do this is the same way that navigation has worked for centuries. They use the position of the stars. But as well as this problem of correcting drift, there's another issue. Because in the rush to power down the command module and power up the limb, they transferred the guidance details from the computer on the command module to the computer in the limb. And Lovell is worried that they may have screwed up the transfer. All it would have taken was one bum keystroke or one misreading of a number. Then the guidance platform would be incorrect. Now, ordinarily, Lovell would just do a quick star check and convince himself the guidance platform was correct. But with all the debris, he can't. And Houston seems to be as worried about the accuracy of the guidance platform as he is. Because for the past half hour, they've been asking him if he can see stars. So Lovell decides to see if he can manoeuvre out of the debris cloud. But no matter what he does, the debris keeps pace and he can't get the craft out of the cloud. So as they're struggling with the ship for a while, Lausma the Capcom calls with news. Aquarius, we'd like to brief you on what our burn plan is. We're going to make a free return manoeuvre of 16 feet per second at 61 hours. Then we're going to power down to conserve consumables and at 79 hours we'll make a PC plus 2 burn to kick what we've got. We want to get you on a free return course and power down as soon as possible. So how do you feel about making a 16 foot per second burn in 37 minutes? Jack, he says speaking to the Capcom, we'll give it a try if that's all we've got, but could you give us a little more time? If they can't get this star check done and the guidance platform is wrong, this planned burn is not going to put them on a free return trajectory. So things get busy for the crew. Hayes is throwing circuit breakers and working through the descent activation checklist with the Capcom. It's the descent engine on the LEM that's going to be firing. And Lovell is a realist. If he's transferred the numbers from the computers correctly, they'll be fine. If they haven't, then they'll be heading in the wrong direction. Okay, Aquarius, are you ready to copy the maneuver coordinates? And Lovell says, that's affirmative. Hayes puts all this into the guidance computer and it swings the spacecraft around so it's pointing to where it thinks is the right direction for the burn. 
Lovell deploys the landing gear on the LEM to get it out of the way of the descent engine, and they are ready. Lovell and Hayes watch the countdown timer on the LEM's panel. Hayes says over the loop to mission control, OK, 1 plus 30 to burn. Lovell flips the master arm switch to on. The computer's now in charge. 22 and a half seconds later, the thrusters on the side of the LEM start firing. This is to get the spacecraft moving. The men feel a shift beneath their feet. Then the descent engine fires and Lovell moves the throttle up to 40% and he calls 40% to the ground. Lausma says, OK, Aquarius, you're looking good. The vibration continues around the men. The engine burns for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Then there's shutdown. The mission control computer says it's lasted longer than intended. 0.72 seconds longer. Lovell waits for his orders to trim the burn. They usually need to refine their trajectory by pulsing the attitude control jets. Then Lausma says, you're go Aquarius, no trim required. And Lovell is grinning. They've done it. And Lovell knows that if their guidance platform is correct, then they are on their way home. NASA just has to figure out how to keep them alive long enough to get there. Away from the Tiger Team's room 210, Chris Craft is thinking about the next burn, the all-important PC plus two burn. Now this burn is called the PC plus two burn because it takes place two hours after the craft's perisynthium, the point where it's closest to the moon as it passes around it. And there are some key people working on this burn. There's the men in the trench and there's the other off-duty flight directors. Gold Team Director Jerry Griffin and Maroon Team Leader Walt Windler. So that night, from 3am until 7am, Griffin and Windler try to work out options. And in the morning, they're sitting in the aisle next to the flight director station when Chris Kraft comes up behind them and asks, what have we got? And Griffin says, as far as we can see, we've got three options. Then Kraft asks if they can talk about these plans in about an hour. There'll be a number of people coming in who'll want to go over them. And these people are big. They're NASA top brass. People not usually seen in mission control. This is going to be a very serious chat. And Griffin says, this is going to happen in an hour. And Kraft says, less than an hour. And then he says he wants to talk to all the flight directors to make sure they know what they want to do before it gets discussed with the bigwigs. Griffin and Windler get Lonnie, who hands over to his assistant, and Kraft brings them to a staff support room. Now Kraft decides he doesn't want to disturb Gene Kranz in room 210. Let him keep focusing on his work. So now the men talk over the options, and by the end of the chat, Kraft seems satisfied. So now they start to go over to the viewing room, the big glass-windowed auditorium that looks out over mission control. But before they get there, Griffin stops. He tells Kraft he wants Chuck Dietrich and Dave Reed in the room at the meeting. And Kraft says, go get them and get Gene too. Then they all walk into the meeting room and to Gene Krantz, this is all smokescreen. 
This is Chris Kraft running interference for the flight directors. And Gene Kranz just watches. Let them play at being flight directors. At the end of the day, it's him and his team that are going to make the decisions about which burn is going to take place. So Chris Kraft opens the meeting. In about 12 hours, we're going to need to execute our PC plus two burn. Our objective will be to get the crew home as fast as possible while stretching our consumables as far as possible. The flight directors have come up with some possible burns and since it's Jerry's team that worked out so many of the numbers, I'll let him explain them. So Griffin sets out the three options. Coming in at one is what he calls for simplicity, the super fast burn. For this burn, Lovell will burn the engine on the limb for a long time. They'll burn for more than six minutes before shutting down. Now the upsides for this burn are really good. It will put them in the ocean on Thursday morning. But there are some big downsides. It will pretty much require them to use all their fuel. And it puts them in the wrong ocean. The Navy are not set up well for an Atlantic recovery. And then there's another problem. To do this super fast burn, they need to jettison the service module before the burn. Now, given there's a little chance of getting it back online, this doesn't sound like a big deal to have to jettison it. But it still performs one very important function. The service module fits over the bottom of the command module, the circular part of the cone where the heat shield is. And as long as it's there, it's protecting the heat shield. And this heat shield is going to be critical to stop the command module burning up during re-entry. If they damage it, then everything will have been for nothing. Which brings them to burn two. This is very similar to the super fast burn, says Griffin, but it will add a few more hours onto the home journey. So what's the benefit of adding a few more hours? Well, in these two hours, the Earth will have time to complete another quarter turn which will drop Apollo 13 in the Pacific instead of the Atlantic Ocean. But this burn also needs them to dump the service module before burning, so all the heat shield worries are still in play. Which brings up option three, the slow burn. In this burn, Lovell will fire the engine for just four and a half minutes. This will land them in the Pacific and it will not require them to dump the service module and expose the heat shield. But this burn, instead of plopping them in the Pacific Ocean on midday Thursday, will actually put them in the ocean on midday Friday. A whole 24 hours later, and this is a long, long time in terms of the life support the limb can provide. So these are the three options. And the arguments go on. And throughout this, Chris Kraft is silent. And slowly, the view in the room begins favouring the slow burn. And Chris Kraft and Gene Kranz and the other controllers are silently happy. Because this is the option they prefer too. And then it's simply argued out. And Chris Kraft takes back control. He speaks to the room saying, So it's agreed. At 79 hours and 27 minutes, there will be an 850 foot per second burn for four and a half minutes. Aiming for a Pacific splash at 142 hours. If all goes well, Apollo 13 will be home by Friday afternoon.
Open Apollo 13, it's been six hours since the explosion. And at this stage, the crew have been up for a long time and the flight surgeons have demanded some sleep regardless of the crisis. The plan they've come up with is for Hayes to go to sleep now, which is around 4am, and sleep until about 10am. Then he'll get up and Lovell and Swaggart will sleep from then until 5pm that evening. That will leave them all up on duty that evening for going around the moon and the PC plus two burn. But for Fred Hayes, sleep is going to be a problem. And the biggest issue becomes obvious when he floats through the LEM tunnel and into the command module where he's expected to sleep. He's shocked with what he finds there. It's freezing cold. And this is only hours after it's been abandoned, but all its heaters and electronics have been turned off and its temperature has plummeted. So his lies in his sleeping bag, wide awake and very cold. He's shivering and he tries to sleep, but it simply doesn't work. Eventually at 6am, only two hours later, a frozen, miserable and still exhausted Fred Hayes just gives up. He unzips himself from his sleeping bag and he floats back into the LEM. Lovell looks at him and says, that's it. And Hayes says, it's too cold up there. And the day wears on. Lovell and Swaggart try to get some sleep, but they have all the same issues as Hayes. It's too cold and Lovell's just too worried about all the stuff that still has to happen for them to survive. And their speed has been increasing as they've gotten closer to the moon. And then they've got to go around it and do some sort of burn. And the success of that burn depends on the accuracy of their guidance platform. And Mission Control still hasn't come up with a way to check that. Down in the Tiger Team's Room 210, Bill Peters is busy working on how to make the LEM survive long enough to get the crew home. Peters has been around for a while. He's worked on every flight since Gemini 3 in 1965. And he, along with the team at Grumman who designed the LEM, have made huge progress in stretching its consumables. They're going to make this LEM fly and remain functioning in a way it was never, ever designed to work. Now, the first problem they resolve is the oxygen problem. And it turns out there's no oxygen problem. There's plenty of oxygen, even for three men. And the reason is that the LEM is designed to land on the moon and be opened for two moonwalks. And each time it's opened, it has to vent all its oxygen. So it has to have enough oxygen to be refilled twice. And now, because it isn't actually landing on the moon and isn't going to be opened twice, they have all this oxygen in reserve for life support. Which brings them to water and power. The water is in short supply on the LEM, and that's a big problem, because it has a number of important functions. One is providing drinking water for the crew. The other is providing cooling water for the LEM's electrical systems. But this is also related to power. The more power you use in running the electrical systems, the more water you need for cooling. So minimising power usage also minimises the need for coolant. And they really need to minimise power. And Peters works out they can run the limb on less power than even the grooming people think is possible. 
Now, normally the LEM needs 55 amps to run, and Peters is going to reduce this to a pretty shocking 12 amps. And to complicate things further, John Aaron comes looking for some of Peters' amps. Aaron is, of course, busy working on how to power up the command module for every entry, and Aaron is dealing with the issue that some battery power in the command module was used when the service module was dying. Now Aaron needs to charge these batteries back up to ensure they can actually get through re-entry. And there's only one way to charge the batteries back up. Use power from the LEM. So now not only does Peters have to stretch the battery life of the LEM, he also has to give up some of his scarce power to John Aaron. So Peters' plan is to run a craft as complex as the LEM on a starvation ratio of power. When the crew executed the burn to put them back on a free return trajectory, they partially powered down the LEM. But this is nothing compared to what Peters is going to do once the LEM goes around the moon and completes the PC plus two burn. Then he's going to make the astronauts take an astonishing range of systems offline. In fact, the only systems he's going to leave on are the communication systems and one of its antennas so the crew can keep in touch with Houston, the cabin fan to circulate oxygen, and water glycol coolant pumps, which will keep the other two systems cool. This is mad stuff. It's like keeping only the radio and dash fan on in your car. Peter's plan to get the men home means they will have to survive in what is essentially a powerless cold tin can as it coasts back to Earth. And what if it gets too cold? Tough, no power for the heaters. And what if they need to change their trajectory? They'll need to turn on the computers. Tough, no power for the computer. They'll have to do it blind. And now that Peters has solved the power problem, he's also solved the water problem. Without a big drain on power, there's no big drain on water as a coolant. So one dark, very cold lamb is going to support three men on the long fall to earth, which leaves only one glaring problem that Peters hasn't solved. The carbon dioxide problem. Because the way the LEM and command module work is they provide oxygen to the crew. But as the crew breathes in the oxygen, they breathe out carbon dioxide. And this carbon dioxide is dealt with by the lithium hydroxide filters or canisters, which remove the carbon dioxide from the cabin. But the LEM filters are not designed to remove the carbon dioxide from three men for the length of time it will take to get them home. Once these filters become saturated, the carbon dioxide levels will build up and poison the crew. So while Peters has solved all these electrical problems, the air in the LEM will be growing more and more poisonous. Up in Apollo 13, Jim Lovell is still worried about their alignment. He looks at Fred Hayes and says, how do you think they're coming along with the alignment business, Frito? And Hayes replies, can't be too great or we'd have heard something. So Lovell says they'll get Houston on the line and have a chat when suddenly the Capcom calls Aquarius Houston and Hayes says, go ahead, Houston. And then the Capcom, Vance Brand, tells them about a procedure they want the crew to use to check their alignment 
and it's a weird one. Rather than using the pinpoint accuracy of the stars to align the platform, they're going to use something a lot less accurate. They're going to use the sun. Because with all the debris out there, they can't see the stars. Well, they can see stars, but the problem is they can see too many stars. The real stars are indistinguishable from the debris because the debris is twinkling. This really isn't a super accurate alignment check, but Brand lays it out for them anyway. They will ask the LEMS computer to align the LEMS so that their alignment telescope is aimed at the northeast quadrant of the sun. If the computer does this and the telescope actually points at the northeast corner of the sun, then they will know to some level of accuracy that their alignment platform for the LEMS is pretty good. In other words, because the spacecraft thinks the sun is there and it turns out that that's actually where the sun is, then the ship knows where it is in space and it's therefore aligned properly. So now the Capcom comes back on the line and starts to read up the details of the procedure. And when he's done, he tells Lovell that the check will take place in about an hour or so. Lovell looks at his watch and asks, why can't they do it now? And Brand says, okay. So they set to work. Lovell gets in front of the centre of the instrument panel. He'll look after the guidance computer. Swigert will be at the right-hand window to tell Lovell when the sun will hopefully drift into view. Hayes will look through the alignment telescope to see if the crosshairs line up on the sun. This is one of the most important times in the whole flight. If they can establish that their guidance platform is correct, then they can execute the PC plus two burn with confidence and be on the right trajectory home. But if the platform is wrong, then they have an uphill battle ahead of them to get it aligned before they go around the moon. Even worse, if it's wrong, they could actually crash into the moon. So they are ready, and Fred Hayes either deliberately or accidentally knocks the system over into hot mic so the ground can hear all of them talking at once. And Mission Control hears how worried Jim Lovell is. He says, I don't have all the confidence in the world in this. And Hayes replies, we'll get it. And Lovell says, don't be so sure. I still might have screwed up my arithmetic last night. So Lovell enters the information into the computer. The computer processes it. And then it waits for Lovell to press proceed. Lovell looks at each of his crewmates in turn and hits proceed. Outside the windows of the LEM, a fine mist of hypergolic gas can be seen from the thrusters and the astronauts feel the ship slowly turning, turning itself to face where it thinks the sun is. Lovell is watching the gauges. We've got roll, he says. Now yaw, roll, pitch, yaw again. Then he asks Houston if they're seeing the movement and Brand says no, not yet. Lovell says Roger, then asks Swaggart, you see anything yet, Jack? Swaggart says nothing. So Lovell asks Hayes, anything over there? And Hayes says not a thing. And this sort of talk and movement continues for almost eight long minutes. And Swaggart keeps watching for the sun to come into view. And then, it does. Just a small flash, and he alerts Lovell, and before Lovell can respond, a beam of light lands on his instrument panel. Lovell says, call it, Jack. What do you see? 
We've got the sun, says Swaggart. But getting it in the window is one thing. Hayes' telescope needs to line up perfectly. Lovell says, You see anything, Fredo? No, says Hayes. Then suddenly, his eyepiece is filling with light. The telescope is definitely turning to face the sun. Hayes says, Yes, maybe a third of a diameter. And still, the sun brushes across the crosshairs of Hayes' telescope and begins to slide downwards. Hayes says, Just about there. Lovell says, We've got it. I think we've got it. And then Hayes says again, Just about there. Then the jets on the LEM shut down. And it comes to a stop. And wherever the ship's telescope's pointing now is where it thinks the upper right-hand corner of the sun is. Lovell says, What have you got? What have you got? And maddeningly, Hayes doesn't respond. Then he takes his eye away from the eyepiece and he has a huge grin. He says, Upper right-hand corner of the sun. And what the astronauts don't see is the whoop that goes up from the controllers in Mission Control. The people who started are the retro Fido and Guido, the ones the sun check matters most to. Then it spreads through the room with clapping and celebration. Now this sort of disorder doesn't happen often and it isn't tolerated very much, but Jerry Griffin lets it go. If this had come out badly, the night ahead of them would have been very different. So now they can go around the moon and fire the engine for the PC plus two burn to send the men home. Houston, uh, 75 hours, uh, 58 minutes now into the flight. Our clock in mission control shows uh, we're at one hour, 10 minutes, uh, 30 seconds away from time of loss of signal as Aquarius and Odyssey uh, pass above the uh, backside of the moon. Apollo 13 is speeding towards the moon. They're approaching its western edge, which is in deep shadow, and then they'll fly from direct sunlight into darkness. And as the spacecraft passes into the shadow of the moon, the sunshine around them starts to dwindle, and the light illuminating the debris begins to drop away. The whole ship is darkening. It's just hours after the sun check to confirm their alignment, and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes are back at the controls of the LEM. Jack Swaggart is behind them, trying to stay out of the way. Lovell looks out the window, and he suddenly sees stars. Scorpio and Antares. Swaggart looks out and says, they're all coming out. And then he says they have plenty for a navigation check. They pass the news to mission control and the word comes back that Houston is happy with their alignment. They don't want to waste time on a check. Time is running low for checks and once they pass behind the moon, they'll lose contact with Houston and be out for 25 minutes. Vance Brand, the Capcom, comes back on the line to read up the manoeuvring data for the PC Plus 2 burn. 
Bran reads up the data, Hayes copies it down, and then he reads it all back to Brand. And Lovell can hear concern in Bran's voice. Brand is tense. But Lovell realises he's actually becoming more relaxed the closer they're getting to loss of signal and the burn. Lovell looks out the window and sees the sun setting behind them. And then it sets. And Apollo 13 is in complete shadow. The debris appears to vanish like someone flicked off a light switch and the stars around them explode into view. Lovell says over the calm, Houston, the sun has gone down and man, look at those stars. Hayes points out Nuki, which is incredibly bright. Swigert leans over Lovell's shoulder to look out and says, what's that cloud over there? Lovell replies, the Milky Way, thinking Swigert's talking about the band of light cutting across black space. But Swigert says, no, not the illuminated one, the dark one. Actually, two dark ones. They look like contrails. And Lovell has to look very carefully to see what Swigert's pointing at. And then he sees them. A pair of what looked like black columns, only visible because they're blotting out stars and they're moving with the ship. And Lovell says, I can't for the life of me figure out what that would be. Then he adds, it might be debris that was thrown out there. Hayes asks, from manoeuvres? And Lovell replies, no, from our explosion. And this thought disturbs them. It's disturbing to think that part of their spacecraft has failed. Not only failed, but it looks like it's blown up. Less than 10 minutes away now from predicted time of LOS. Uh, We're at 76 hours, uh, 59 minutes into the mission. We see the velocity on our displays uh, for Apollo 13 uh, really building up now. Now reading uh, 6,736 feet per second. Then Brand comes back on calm. Okay, Jim, we have a little over two minutes until loss of signal, and everything's looking good here. So only two minutes before they go behind the moon, Lovell checks with Brand that they don't need to do anything else before they lose signal, and Brand says no. Then Lovell and Hayes and Swagger are quiet, and they wait. We've uh, had loss of signal with Apollo 13 as it passes above the backside of the moon. We're at 77 hours, 9 minutes, and now to the flight of Apollo 13. The signal from Houston disappears, and they're truly alone. Then just about 5 minutes before they're due to reacquire signal, Hayes suddenly sees light appear through his window. Then he sees moon craters appear in the distance as they round the moon. They're moving out of the shadow and seeing a lunar sunrise. He grabs his camera, Swigert grabs his camera too, and pushes over to where Lovell's standing. Lovell, who's seen all this 16 months ago on Apollo 8, just drifts out of the way. He watches as the two rookies stare out the windows and snap pictures. They're only 139 miles above the lunar surface. There's craters and hills and it looks a familiar but at the same time alien landscape. It's ghastly and rough. Lovell remains at the back of the lamb and watches Swaggart and Hayes. He watches their excitement as they take pictures and point out landmarks. On his last flight he wasn't the commander, but this time he is and these men are his responsibility. So after a few minutes more he calls Houston on the comm. They should have reacquired their signal by now. Good morning, Houston. How do you read? 
Reading you fairly well, says Brand. And Lovell looks out the window over Swaggart's shoulder and sees their trajectory is now taking them away from the moon and flinging them home. He says, All right, we read you fairly well too. And for your information, we're coming up on Mars Me now and it looks like we're climbing away. And Swaggart says, we're really zooming off now. And Lovell says, oh, yes, yes, we're no longer at 139 miles. We're leaving. And what's in Lovell's head now is the upcoming PC plus two burn. They have to be ready and set for it. There's no room for mistakes. They have to get the LEM powered up and they still need the power up details from the ground. So Lovell's checking breakers in anticipation. But in the cramped LEM, he has to reach around Swaggart and his. But they are only moving out of his way briefly, then floating back to the windows. It's like the moon is calling them. And this little dance goes on for a few minutes before Lovell gets sick of it. He drifts to the back of the limb. He folds his arms and says loudly, way too loudly for this tiny cockpit. Gentlemen, what are your intentions? Swaggart and Hayes are startled. They turn around and look at him. Swaggart says, our intentions? And Lovell says, yes. We have a PC plus two manoeuvre coming up. Is it your intention to participate in it? Hayes speaks without much conviction, but he says, Jim, this is our last chance to get these shots. We've come all the way out here. Don't you think they're going to want us to bring back some pictures? Lovell says, If we don't get home, you'll never get those pictures developed. This was Saving Apollo 13. If you liked the show, I'd love if you took the time to tell a friend about it. This show was produced by forensic engineering firm Brady Haywood. Brady Haywood specializes in forensic engineering and investigating the causes of failures. For more information, head to the website bradyhaywood.com.au. This show was written and narrated by me, Sean Brady. It was produced in partnership with the team at Waveland Creative, who helped write, edit and mix the show. Special thanks to everyone who reviewed my scripts, fact-checked and given valuable feedback while producing this podcast. And one last thing. If you've got a complicated idea that you want to communicate with your employees or customers, then making a podcast like this is a really great way to get your message across. And I really recommend Waveland Creative, who helped me produce this show. To talk to the team at Waveland about your idea, head to the website waveland.fm. There's a link in this episode's show notes.